Sometimes I just have a, you know what I can, you know, the thing is I write, okay. I have, it takes me less motivation to, to get myself to write than it does to exercise. And so I usually write before I exercise, but I write better after I exercise because my brain is just working better. So I should be exercising first thing in the morning and then writing, but I don't because I don't want to get up in the morning and immediately work out. Hmm. That is horrible. So what's what's your recommendation if I wake up 20 minutes before my first meeting and have a PBR in the shower and then work for 10 hours? It seems like you should probably stop drinking, honestly. Drink, stop drinking or stop working? Because <laughs> both sound like solutions. If somebody, One if is some, way more if somebody told me that sentence and then said, what's your life advice for me? I would say, that's a person that needs to stop drinking. <laughs> wait what What if my girlfriend and i have um shower beers together and it's like a cute couple thing you're not in college anymore you can't you can't get away with that i can get away with it for as long as she says it's cute and she says it's cute now so i'm gonna go with do you guys really do you guys really yours. do pbr yeah i you got like a, a 24 pack in the fridge wow bougie she prefers PBR. I remember over. when you were a Jenny Cream man. I was never a Jenny Cream man. We were never Jenny Cream. No, man. no, no. It that's was always Jenny OG. It was always OG Jenny. I know nobody knows. O- everybody knows Jenny Cream though, and nobody knows Jenny OG. All the bars in Brooklyn, if they're gonna serve Jenny, they're gonna serve Jenny Cream and a shot of well whiskey, which is delicious, and I love it. I real. Do they do Jenny Cream nowadays? I feel like Narragansett is like the number one shot beer combo beer. At Carmelo's, Which, it's Well Whiskey and Bud. At the place at Fulton Ale House near where I used to live, it was Jenny Cream and Well Whiskey. And But the other option is always Tecate and tequila. tequila. Which is the better option because you get the lime and the Tecate. True, I do love lime and the Tecate. That is fucking delicious. Yeah. Although and I recently started coming around to tequila. I, I bar limes are pretty fucking gross, though. You don't know. Lime, I, I'm not gonna say lime is lime is lime, but that it's... shit has been sitting out on the. It's not the quality of the lime. It's where it's been for the last hour and a half. Like, um, True. all right, all right. We should we should start though. Ready. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. My name is Mark. I'm still Alex after all this time. And in this episode, we're going to examine the intersections of our mainstream understanding of mental illness and the ongoing legacy of colonialism. And right off the bat, the most obvious thing to say about that is that communities that have suffered under colonialism are more likely to suffer from a variety of mental illnesses, particularly depression, and are also more likely to suffer from substance abuse problems by quite a bit. According to some stats compiled by the American Psychiatric Association, people who identify as either American Indian or Alaskan Native 
had the highest instances of depression and depressive episodes in adolescents out of every ethnic group in the country, and this same population suffers from a coincidence of mental illness and substance abuse at a rate nearly three times that of the American general population. And you couple this with the fact that this is a demographic that's more than twice as likely as your average American to be without health insurance. So broadly speaking, the legacy of colonialism in America and, you know, around the world in regards to mental health has been to shoulder colonize people with bigger problems than the settler population while providing worse treatment. And that's, I know I just, I know I just threw like a bunch of like random ass stats there, but the point is that it's, it's not good on like a material analysis level. And that's a critique that's good and it's very useful. And we shouldn't stop making that as long as the economic legacy of colonialism persists. But it's also a very low-level critique, and it's not actually what this episode is about. Today, I want to critique how our understanding of mental illness too often paints it as a purely biomedical phenomenon, and I specifically want to analyze this problem in the context of colonialism and how this perspective hurts indigenous communities. I want to start off by recognizing that the biomedical perspective on mental health has been very helpful for a lot of people to be open about their experiences without as much fear of being stigmatized, and that is a good thing. It has also aided in the development of countless treatments that many people who suffer from mental illness find very helpful. Our criticism is not of the medical perspective as one that is capable of producing accurate information about mental illness and our experiences with it, nor do I want to argue that recommending that someone seek medical help for mental illness is necessarily harmful or like doing colonialism. Instead, my contention is with the reductionism that takes place around this subject. Looking to socio-political causes for an individual's mental illness can be difficult to say the least. There are a lot of factors you can't measure, and even if you could, you couldn't isolate them in a study to find a causal relationship. Too often, however, our reaction to this reality is to turn our backs entirely on the subjective and look only to what we can learn through the application of the scientific method. This is a mistake. And some of you may have a little light going off in your brain, and yes, that's exactly what Bookchin was saying when he talked about combating scientism. And that's what we're going to do now. Not banish the scientific from the halls of knowledge, but simply open the doors to other potential sources of truth. Let's go back to that material critique I levied at the very beginning. That colonialism has created an economic situation that deprives indigenous communities who suffer from higher rates of mental illness of the mental health care they need. This critique is based on measurable fact, yes, but it's also based on a subtle assumption that mental health is best understood through the lens of physical illness and that solutions are best understood through the lens of removing economic barriers to accessing evidence-based treatment. The assumption I've just described makes up the core of the medicalized view of mental illness. The cause of depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain, a freak accident of nature. As we just said, the medical view is not inherently bad. Its adoption as a mainstream perspective on mental health has been a generally progressive development. In the not-too-distant past, our understanding of mental health was decidedly more reactionary. Many endemic mental health issues were viewed as personal moral failings or essential flaws in a given group of people. Women, for example, who may have suffered from a variety of different mental ailments, or who just didn't act the way powerful men wanted them to, were painted with the immeasurably broad brush of hysteria. Many indigenous people have been painted with a similarly broad brush of amok for similar reasons. 
However, can these you can go yeah. into. Sorry, can you go into a more a little bit more about what amok means? So amok is you're familiar with the term run amok. Yeah, 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 I figured it was that, but like um, to clarify, just a yeah. Bit more. So it's basically um, like a, savage ish. Well, it's a it's a it's a broad term that just like okay, like it might be easier if I talk if we talked about hysteria first, like because you you you, you kind of understand you kind of like know what hysteria is. It's just like when like the housewives of Victorian England were like not obeying their husbands properly, and they would like get mad sometimes then they were like diagnosed with hysteria and then they could like hop them up on like drugs and like give them lobotomies and shit oh yeah yeah so it's basically yeah i mean it's it's a very uncharitable it's a very uncharitable um uh reading of what amok is but it's basically just like when when indigenous peoples uh specifically amok uh is mostly associated with like malaya and like that surrounding area in southeast asia um and Malaya? yeah 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 like in between vietnam and indonesia oh okay i never heard of that before um well it, malaysia is the country but malaya is like a landmass. it's complicated oh. okay <laughs> is, is malaysia part of malaya sorry not malaya is part of malaysia malaysia the country is split between the malayan peninsula which comes off the bottom. It actually comes off the bottom of Thailand, I think. And then it kind of leads into Indonesia. And then the biggest island in Indonesia is Borneo. And there's like a strip of coast on that island. And the Malayan Peninsula and that bit of Borneo is Malaysia. And maybe some other little islands. I don't know. Fuck, I wish I got more into geography. I love geography. As the American you tell. education system has absolutely failed me. Because I just, for one summer, I just took quizzes like online quizzes about african geography and just taught myself and it was so fucking fun and i wish i wish i was taught that in public school do we want to do we want to uh, start up again <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> sorry so we were talking about hysteria and amok and these conditions both continued to exist well into the biomedical era even though they're kind of from an era that is a little bit before then. And Amok was even included by name in the DSM-4, which only became outdated as recently as 2013. The biomedical view did not create patriarchy or colonialism, obviously, but it just doesn't have the tools to combat them directly, and therefore it's kind of relegated to managing the mental illness that occurs as a result of these systems. Um... You know, as I said before, good has come from the mainstreaming of the medical view, for sure. Speaking openly about one's own mental illness has been destigmatized greatly. It's perfectly common nowadays for, like, celebrities or internet personalities to talk at length, not only about the mental illnesses that they suffer from, but also from their efforts to seek treatment, either in the form of medication or therapy, or both. However, there is a more sinister side to this development. Insurance companies are incentivized to provide the cheapest possible treatment for any given illness, and prescribing pills is far and away cheaper than providing therapy, and the results it produces are easier to test and measure. Um, one, probably the best example of this is uh, Prozac coming onto the market in 1988, uh, which was tremendously profitable, and then those profits were funneled back into advertising, which in turn produced more profits and really helped to 
um, popularize the view that like depression is just a thing that happens. It's like it, it's just kind of an unfortunate circumstance. Um, that's just like a part of like your health, like anything else. A part of like an, a couple individuals' health or everyone's health. Well, they, a part of a part of an individual's health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The individualization, and it's just kind of like you just have depression. Like it's just a disease that you have. Like, um, it doesn't know. affect like um, different people in varying. Uh, not necessarily that it doesn't is what they affect people in varying ways but just that in particular it's the idea that it's a medical problem solely and not a social problem that people have depression interesting so they'd reject the idea that coronavirus is causing depression a low-grade depression among a vast majority of the american public well you know i have to admit that like i think most people understand that that there are external causes that can like cause depression and stuff like that but like for the most part the way that we do mental illness especially on an institutional level when we talk about institutionally providing healthcare and stuff like that um when we talk about solving mental health problems it's always in this medical it's always from this medicalized perspective and not from a social perspective such as like hey maybe people are upset and like depressed all the time because of capitalist alienation. That's not really something that mental health doctors talk about much. Yeah, it's very formulaic, not contextualized exactly. at all. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And so um as a result of all that, discussion of mental health was destigmatized, but at the same time, we've lost the forest for the trees. Mental illness is now an individual problem, the result of one's brain chemistry. Social causes for mental illness are not as intently looked for, which allows patriarchal or colonialist attitudes to persist, now just under more medicalized language. Something we skipped over in our discussion of Frantz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth was his extended analysis of a group of mental illness cases he treated as a psychiatrist in Algeria shortly following the conclusion of its fight for independence from French imperialism. I want to come back to that and dwell for a little bit on it. Fanon's primary assertion in this section of his book is that colonialism does not stop at hurting a native population in material economic ways. Rather, colonial control by its nature leads to the development of a variety of mental illnesses in people who have to live under it, and who may have been perfectly healthy otherwise. These cases are interestingly separated into two groups. The first includes people who suffer from mental illness that can be traced back to a specific event related to colonial occupation or the struggle against it. One of these cases was a man who survived a mass killing at the hands of French colonial troops. Following this event, he was plagued by constant fear and reported homicidal intentions with regularity. The parallels between colonialism and this particular person's mental illness are easy and I imagine pretty uncontroversial to draw. But there are subtler ways than this in which this relationship can manifest. The second group of cases includes those who trace their mental illness back to colonial rule, but not any particular event. Those of us who are seeking social or political change as a means to combat mental illness should be particularly interested in cases like this. One of these was a multi-copying machine maker. This guy was an urban professional, an Algerian, who fit to some degree pretty neatly into the colonial structure. Materially, this is someone who occupies a place of relative privilege in the colonial society, at least amongst the Algerian population. However, he reported that he used to hear voices, especially at night, calling him a coward and a traitor, 
which reflected a guilt that he felt over not taking an active role in his people's fight for independence. And eventually, those factors came to a head. He had witnessed too much of his countrymen abused and arrested while he got by by adopting European cultural signifiers. He attempted at one point to actually grab a French soldier's rifle just like out of nowhere. And the soldiers initially assumed he was a militant, but they later realized that he was suffering from mental illness. And he told Fanon that he felt an urge in that moment to make the French understand that he was not one of them and that he was also their enemy. The purpose of discussing cases like this is to point out that social factors can lead to a higher instance of mental illness in a population, and likewise can be identified as the cause for a specific individual. The thing is, this is kind of true for everyone. Whether we're subjects of colonial rule or we live in the imperial cores, our mental health is related to our social conditions. We all suffer, though on different levels, under systems that require us to act in a specific way and punish deviation, and this is bad for our mental health. This is in fact exactly what Mark Fisher, an American, was talking about in Capitalist Realism when he called for the politicization of mental illness. And if this was all I wanted to say, this episode could have just as easily been named Mental Health and Neoliberalism. The reason it isn't is that the biomedical perspective can be criticized on a basis that is specific to colonialism and to the experience of indigenous communities around the world. So in that case, you're, you don't want to talk about how it affects first world countries. Well, I feel like I've, I've just done that. Because, this, because, because, because what people are experiencing in Algeria is on a, on a lesser level experienced by Americans who live in America. Um, you know, not, not, as a result of colonial rule, but as a result of just living under neoliberalism. It's fucking depressing. Yeah, it makes you feel like you can't really, really do anything. But yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. So you said he grabbed a French soldier's rifle. Yeah. And then they realized he was struggling with mental illness. Yeah. Um, is there some sort of instruction manual that we can give to <laughs> American cops? for that sorry we just glossed over that and i was like i you were on a roll so that you keep going but i was like shit that's wow that's really it's really nice of them to you like, know he must i can't believe that at the I very did, least yeah uh i mean I, th- I think he would have been arab no shot no shot he would have that would have happened yeah and they well you know something there there is also there was a tact when you're dealing with actually organized militants, there's actually a tactical advantage to taking them in alive because then you can get information out of them, which is what they attempted to do. They like tried to figure out who he worked for and who sent him. And they, and they through that questioning, they realized that he hadn't been sent by anyone. And he was in fact, just like having like a mental problem. Wow. Smart, but also fucked up, but also smart on their part for their means within their yeah. own moral, um, moral, moral range yeah and that's not to say that resistance to colonial rule is inherently like an irrational like mentally ill kind of thing to do but doing it in that particular way does betray some irrationality in you you know like just walking up to a french dude and pulling his right and and, and obviously and obviously that 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 is that is kind of proven further by the fact that he like he he wanted to die in that moment he was ready to die um he told fanon as long as they knew as he died that he was their enemy. Yeah, I think that's 
that's also what I talked a little bit about in the um, Angela Davis episode. You're right. That um, he's like, as long as they know that I'm that I'm free, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to die, letting them know, letting them know that I'm free. So I'm proving that I'm free by rebelling like this. I'm so happy you brought that up. That's a, that's a that's a great parallel that I didn't actually notice myself. You know, I have a good idea every now and again, Mark. You do. Yes, you do. Hey, you know what's a great idea? What? Uh, if I go get a beer right now. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. All right, let's do this. All right, cool. So we were talking about um, that last that last uh, bit can kind of be applied to both colonialism and just people kind of living under regular ass neoliberalism. But I want to talk about a particular way in which the medical model kind of betrays people who are kind of living under the legacy of colonialism today in a in in, in a specific way that isn't attributable um, as much or really at all to people. To people like us, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so in order to understand, in order to understand this last critique, we have to ask the most basic questions in the world that still somehow invariably gets every leftist who asks them called a postmodernist. And of course, I mean that we should ask, what is a mental illness and who gets to decide? In this case, the closest thing we have to actual rules is the DSM. We mentioned the DSM earlier offhand, but it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and the basic point of its existence is to define the symptoms and causes of every important mental disorder. While it has competition from other lexicons, particularly the ICD, or International Classification of Diseases, the DSM is totally dominant in the United States, and regardless, these documents actually share quite a bit in common due to direct collaboration between the APA and the World Health Organization, and so the critiques I levy will apply to both of them the same anyway. So the question was, what is mental illness and who decides? And the answer to that is that a mental illness generally involves your brain doing something unusual that interferes significantly with your normal functioning, and the APA and the WHO are the ones who get to decide what that all means. Immediately, we can see the opportunity for colonial attitudes to be institutionalized, particularly through the word normal. When one nation colonizes another, it imposes a set of standards of conduct within the occupied territory. When this new normal conflicts with what used to be normal for you, the native population, the difference between the two is pathologized in favor of the colonizer, and the native is made mentally ill, not by a change in how their brain works, but by a change in the definition of normal. This is a distinct criticism from the one prior, while we were discussing Fanon, we looked at cases in which colonial rule created mental illness in the native population. But crucially, these people were in fact suffering from debilitating mental illness and did require treatment, even if the cause of their mental illness was social in nature. Here, we're looking at situations in which a person is not suffering from any kind of mental illness, but still has their behavior medicalized, or who is maybe suffering from one kind of mental illness resulting from some environmental factor, but who has that behavior defined as mental illness specific and essential to a group they're a part of, 
be it an indigenous community or even a whole gender. Let's take a specific example. In the late 19th century, explorers Josephine Dybich Peary and Robert Peary went on an expedition that brought them to the Inglefield Gulf in northwestern Greenland. The surrounding area was populated by an indigenous people called the Inuhuit. At one point, Josephine witnessed an Inuhuit woman making strange noises and generally freaking out to the point that she needed to be restrained from leaving her igloo. When Josephine asked another Inuhuit person what was going on, she apparently received the reply that the woman was piblocto, or mad. And this formed the basis of the coining of piblocto, or arctic hysteria, as a mental illness. A number of subsequent explorers, such as P.M. Yap and Seymour Parker, undertook expeditions north and interacted with the Inuhuit people, and many of them likewise witnessed Inuhuit people, nearly always women, acting in strange and inexplicable ways. These explorers also used the term piblocto to lump all this behavior under a single, comprehensive label. There are some problems with this. First of all, as with regular hysteria, these explorers were including a very wide range of strange behavior under a single umbrella term. We don't know for sure whether every case that has fed our understanding of Piblocto should necessarily be considered an actual Piblocto case. Furthermore, our understanding of the illness has been entirely filtered through the lens of European and American explorers, i.e. a lens of colonialism. An Inuit person may describe behavior as Piblocto, or much more commonly with a word that's kind of similar to Piblocto, but that doesn't tell us whether the explorers who roughly translated their words to mean madness or hysteria fully understood what the speaker meant, and it certainly doesn't tell us whether our conceptions of madness, which we are now projecting onto these women, even make sense in their linguistic culture. Nevertheless, a multitude of European and American writers set out to discover the cause of this mysterious condition, Undergirding all of this was a persistent infantilization of the Inuhuit people, a sentiment we've become accustomed to when white authors write about indigenous people. Quoting historian Lyle Dick from his paper, Piblocto and European Inuit Relations, quote, Seymour Parker posited that certain societies were more prone than others to hysterical behavior, and that such behavior was culturally prefigured by four factors, including the lack of severe early socialization practices, an emphasis on communalistic values, disadvantages attending the role of women, and a religious system in which hysterical-like behavioral models are institutionalized. Like Gusso, Parker argued that the Inuit were under-socialized, with weak superegos, and thus unrestrained in terms of self-control. Unquote. So that was super racist. I was like, am I the only one hearing this? Am I... <laughs> is, this is this weird that I'm reacting this way? Um, Am I not understanding something? No, no, no. This is supposed to be problematic. Oh, perfect. Um, so in other words, mental illness of this type was an essential characteristic of indigenous people and reflected their inferiority in comparison to whites. Dick, however, is skeptical of whether or not Piblocto exists at all. Let's consider some additional facts. First of all, a 1960 attempt to compile all known instances of Piblocto came up with just 13 cases, of which only 9 were actually witnessed by those who recorded them. Second, the vast majority of cases occurred in the first two decades of the 20th century, which was also the time when contact between the Inuhuit and the West was ramping up and becoming normalized. Third, 
Inuit usage of the words from which Piblokto is derived seem to suggest a link between environmental precarity and what Western explorers might perceive as mental illness. So what really happened here is that a bunch of European and American explorers showed up and started doing stuff, and in the initial years of consistent contact, witnessed about a dozen instances of Inuit people freaking out and decided amongst themselves that there was something wrong with the people of northwestern Greenland. What exactly were these explorers doing? Well, many of them were attempting to get to the North Pole. For this purpose, they would bring along groups of Inuit to help them along. Not only were these people subjected to a much stricter hierarchy of control while on these expeditions than they were used to, but also these expeditions could be very dangerous. I mentioned earlier that the etymology of Piblokto suggests a link between environmental precarity and mental illness. Dick specifies that Inuit men going out on hunting expeditions can be one such stressor, as these expeditions are long and very dangerous. These stresses could have been exasperated on the Peary expedition, when the Inuhuit men who had been brought along were constantly being sent out on exactly these kinds of dangerous expositions. My takeaway from Dick's account is that the Western explorers may have been experiencing something of an observer effect. By coming to the Inuhuit and in the process imposing on them European standards and customs, these explorers created the circumstances that caused Piblokto cases to occur. Since these cases seemed to always happen with some regularity when explorers were around, they concluded that this was just a thing that Inuit people did, and since the behavior was rather weird by European standards, they further concluded that Piblokto represented a more general inferiority. Colonizers take with them institutions that seek to correct this inferiority, which is in turn used to justify the colonization in the first place by painting it as benevolent. Sarah Nelson, a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University in Canada, echoes this sentiment in her paper, Challenging Assumptions. Nelson points out that the language of mental health was created by the colonizing population and imposed on the aboriginal populations of Canada. The problem with the medicalized language of mental health that we use today is less that it gives problematic answers to important social questions in the way colonialism does, but more that it's totally uninterested in asking these questions at all. When we compare the biomedical models of mental health to an aboriginal one, the comparison is between a skeptical and cutting-edge model of knowledge with a traditional, frozen-in-time one. This perspective not only allows Western theorists to get away with flagrant assumptions that aboriginal communities are slow to accrue new knowledge, if they even can at all, but also ignores that the development of new knowledge is a gradual process that was intentionally stifled as a result of colonialism. When the DSM defines a certain behavior as a symptom of mental illness, we are not encouraged to ask on what grounds Western scientists choose what's normal and what's ill behavior. This is a question we should be asking, since the works of writers like Dick and Fanon show convincingly that much of what's been interpreted as mental illness in indigenous communities has its origin not in the biomedical sphere, but in the socio-political sphere. The creation of mental illness among indigenous populations through social and political action, and then treating those same illnesses through structures that ignore social and political factors is obviously a problem. Quoting Nelson, Quote, Making social problems into medical problems diverts both blame for sickness and responsibility for healing to those who are suffering. In the case of Canada's Aboriginal peoples, this amounts to placing the burden of responsibility for health and social problems on people who are simultaneously denied the resources with which to adequately tackle these problems." Unquote. I don't want to give our listeners the impression 
that wanting to ensure that indigenous communities have access to healthcare is an inherently colonialist thing to do. What I want is for us to ask the same questions that Mark Fisher demanded we in the West ask about our own mental illness and the treatments we accept. How is a mental illness defined? Are the negative effects of mental illness exacerbated by the cultural context in which they occur? As someone who suffered from ADHD for my entire life, this is a question I've asked about myself many times. I often wonder whether there really is something wrong with me, or whether I just have trouble fitting into a world that needs me to sit still and obey and work because it's profitable for other people. I often wonder for whose benefit drugs like Ritalin and Adderall are actually prescribed. Is it for me, or is it for my teachers and my boss, who need the people below them to sit down and shut up so they can fulfill their role in a system that exists for the benefit of a small privileged class? Now, many people with ADHD feel genuinely helped by these drugs and other forms of treatment, and I don't ever want to take that away from them, just as I don't want to take away the beneficial effects that medical treatments have had for countless indigenous people around the world. I only argue that these social questions should be asked, and that when we ask them and find social causes for our ailments, that we pursue social solutions as well. I think that was beautifully said, Mark. Thank you. I have, I have no comments. I do. Actually, I, I took that back. I would love to hear if you do have comments. I mean, what I think is that is prescribing me my my SSRI. Yeah. As w- would that be as effective as me quitting my job to do something for less money that I liked? Would that be as effective for my mental health? I think so probably is is my um is my is the antidepressants i am prescribed for um really really for me or to fit into the job i've worked for and to maintain the lifestyle that i've had for myself exactly like i i could like stop taking them but i would hate my hate my day-to-day existence because yeah i i don't enjoy my job as much as as much as i'd like when and when your job takes up 10 to 12 hours of your day um on the weekdays and sometimes weekends that's essentially your life so is the cause is 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 the is what's making my my life so terrible my mental illness or is it my job so is really the solution drugs or is it a societal problem yeah and 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 i've had people get offended at me for for suggesting that um that it's not just purely um medical and i understand why because because we, we've talked about it that i mean the fact that we can even have this conversation on this podcast is on some level attributable to the popularity of the medicalized view of mental illness that it's just that it's just a thing that you suffer from and it's nobody's fault and it's just something that happens. Um, I don't even know. I, I feel I feel like even to use the word suffer in the way that I did there is is, is a bit more stigmatized than a lot of people would prefer. Um, but I don't know. I'm feeling pretty suffering. <laughs> pretty, I'm just kind of fucking suffering day yeah. and day. It's fine. I'm fine with it. <laughs> I, not fine with it, but I feel it's accurate. It is accurate. Do we have anything else to add or are we uh, do 
we feel like we can wrap up no fucking i want to end on a more happy note this is a fucking depressing note to end on i'm not gonna lie to you mark this is a very not gonna lie all but cards it's also, on the table very well written i think that there's i think that there's a hopeful element to it because this is this is what i always say is that i think a lot of people um are really disheartened i, th- I think i think that this is like a very like this is like a very like common like way that we interpret like the reactionary brain is that is that that they're very it's easier to just accept that the bad things that happen are just facts of life and like you can't solve them with policy you know this is this is what people say about gun violence all the time is that you can't solve it with policy you know you can't you can't legislate evil um and 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 learning that the problems of the world that exist um you know not just mental illness but a million things poverty are things that exist because everyone collectively in in the numbers necessary to make it happen either specifically works towards making them a reality or is just doesn't do enough to stop them from being a reality and that they're ultimately choices that we make um that really sucks to hear at first but in the long run, I also think that it's a very empowering thing to to kind of accept about the world because I wouldn't say it's choices that we make exclusively at all. But well, that, yeah, I don't want to be like super individualistic about it. But. Yeah, I think one is that I don't want to say it's not your fault, but it's fuck. I fucking had I it's had not a, the word. I it doesn't to have say. to be about blame. It can just be it's 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 can we do something or can we not? And you can get all utilitarian about it and be like, well, if you can do something and you don't, then it's your fault. But you don't even need to do that. It, it, it can be a hopeful message to to know that maybe we don't – maybe everyone doesn't have to be depressed and anxious all the time. <laughs> maybe there's something we can do about it because the alternative is that there's nothing we can do about it and that kind of sucks. I mean except take drugs and maybe the well, drugs that's... will get better as time goes on. But That's not true and drugs will be better as time goes on. Yeah. You know, they, they drastically, weed potency has drastically increased since the I wasn't the talking 1980s. about those drugs, but sure. <laughs> what kind of drugs are you talking about? Oh, oh, like actual prescription, like, prescription drugs. drugs. Oh, well, I hope they don't get stronger because they're already fucking strong. They're already very strong. Yeah. It's a lot. But what I want to say is that it's not, it's not your fault. Totally. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's not your fault. Totally. <laughs> Well, no, like there's there's certain things you can do that can make it marginally better, you know, but it's it's the situation we're placed in that the cards are stacked against you. It the, the, We aren't placed in a society where it's where it's easy and normal to mentally succeed and you know be happy. Uh, whatever you can do that provides you some sort of relief. I think you should do it. There's kind of a Foucauldian reference that you could that you could make, like the difference between a a a punishment society. I can't remember the exact word, but like a punishment society and a control society is that the punishment society says this is what you're not allowed to do, and we're going to punish you if you do it. But a control society says this is how you have to be, and any deviation from that perfect form, we will punish in increasing degrees as the deviation gets further. And you kind of can see. I feel like you can see the effects of that and how common mental illness is in that like everyone's got something because everyone deviates from like that perfect human that like we need to be in some way and that's pathologized 
And so everyone's got some kind of, because no one's perfect. And, and, and to be imperfect is to have mental illness nowadays in many ways, it feels like. Yeah, not to, not to get all um, 2010 Tumblr, but we're all fucked up a little bit. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's great. I'm all right, so sorry. Um, so do you wanna do you wanna do our end plugs? And then I have something to plug myself as well. Yeah, I think we have the same thing to plug. Oh, okay. You, you you can just do it then. Um I hope everyone follows us at We Read Theory Pod on Twitter. And I hope now that everyone can get together maybe and request some topics for us or talk about the episodes or talk about theory on the new subreddit, We Read Theory Pod. Of which Mark and I are the moderators yeah. and R slash, obviously. Oh yeah, no no no. Reddit.com's R slash R slash we read theory pod. We are yeah, we are going to be I'm gonna be I'm gonna be posting the episode um I'm gonna be posting new episodes in the subreddit and pinning them at the top as they come out. And I would lo- I would I would love to encourage every one of you maybe not every one of you, that'd be a lot, but but those of you who have um questions or, or just observations statements maybe criticisms um about the content of this last episode to come hang out with us in the comments section um and we'll we'll be there to talk with you guys about um you know whatever i, I yeah, imagine really. probably the episode <laughs> yeah no but your yeah. your most recent celebrity crush your your new favorite anime that you haven't talked with anyone else about um your charlie kirk facial edit um i don't know your okay buddy we read theory um (laughs) subreddit you can you can cross post that's fine um whatever you want to talk about uh i will probably respond because it's quarantine i'm doing nothing already yeah and me and mark are obviously marked with mark and alex tags so you'll you'll see us us. up up in there if you want to get in contact with us to be fair though, it's not like I don't respond on our Twitter. I'm I feel like I feel like I'm taking care of the Twitter, pretty responsive. You know, I know I, I want I want a format where I can like give like long detailed answers if people have specific questions though. You do like to do that. I do I, like I, to do I'm that. more I'm more quick witted and um just posting memes and you know, generally shitty content. Alright. Are we peacing out? Let's peace the fuck out, please. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks. Love you guys. All right.